1: Dan, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this
2: room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm set. Okay, okay. Welcome to Space Boffins. We're failing to deliver a podcast... Is not an option.
3: That explains why we're actually in our living room. And it's like
2: everyone's living room, I'd imagine. Anyone who's in some sort of lockdown, it's a little bit of a mess. But then, to be fair, so is the office where we normally record the podcast. So no,
3: no change there. No, then.
2: exactly. So it's very much as as would be normally done. Uh, we're in partnership, as would be normally done. What sort of language is that? We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollinger. And I'm
3: Sue Nelson. Um, this time we're celebrating two major anniversaries. The first, Hubble's 30th birthday, and we'll talk to one of the astronauts. That helped to launch it. And the second is that it's been 50 years since Apollo 13 had a small problem on the way to the moon. Plus, we visit a UK pioneer of CubeSats.
2: And I'm quite excited because we've got two lots of music in the podcast. Normally you can't put music in podcasts copyright for reasons, lots of really yeah. boring reasons. Copyright. Yeah well copyright <laughs> but lots of boring reasons because I'd be happy to pay but you can't pay copyright. anyway you can't yeah. look, it doesn't matter. Copyright. We've got two lots of music and it's really exciting so we've got a bit of Hubble music original Hubble music which mm-hmm. probably hasn't been played since 1990. So we've got that.
3: That makes it sound like there's a reason that it must be really <laughs> well, judge, bad. Well, judge for yourself.
2: <laughs> yeah, okay. and um, But don't be too judgmental because the uh, the person who wrote it very kindly let us use it. I'm sure it's fabulous. Yes, uh, it is fabulous. And then we've also got music for Apollo 13. Oh, excellent. Good. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So I set the scene a bit more. I mean, we've got the well, di- di- me- dining room table. I think table. covered it, really. Yeah, We're on the dining, dining room, room table. table
3: instead of in our little studio. Richard's got a mug of tea, I haven't. I'm so tempted to get a glass of white wine.
2: <laughs> <you know> <laughs> I just made tea. Why didn't you get a cup I'm of tea? I'm not in the
3: mood for a cup of tea. And this
2: is great, because this, this mug, mug, I mean, yeah. it, it's really seen better days, but it's um, I Need Space, and it's from the uh, the park's dish in Australia. So yeah. do you want to take a picture of that? I will. While I we're going, will. I shouldn't yeah. hold it over the mixer. That's really, really dangerous. So um, uh, anyway, we uh, fully intend to keep space boffings going. In fact... Uh, we're going to do some extra episodes. More on that uh, a, li- <laughs> a little later on. Uh, what? Are they? Stop taking pictures of me! It's That's really right. disconcerting. Right. And um, I also wanted to say is yeah, we're keeping the podcast going, and lots of people are keeping podcasts going, people radio programs going. Pod- Loads of we got This is where podcasts.
3: podcasts come into their own, really, don't they? Because as long as you've well, I don't even actually, you know, you don't need the gear, obviously, because it's part of what we do for a living. Well, we also We've like got the gear, gear and we, we like, like the gear. gear yeah. But basically, if you're just a bit gobby, and you want to chat and you've got something to say, you can do a podcast, really.
2: Yeah, exactly. No, it's great. And and radio radio as well. And what's also great is space is carrying on. Okay, so we've had the um, European spaceport in French Guiana shut down mm-hmm. and various missions delayed. But we had a launch just the other day to the International Space Station, and there are still people in space. So you've got a pandemic sweeping the Earth, but people still on the International Space Station, which I find very heartening.
3: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that... Um, I think the International Space Station and Antarctica, which is used for psychological experiments for going to the space station and uh, and how isolation affects your mind, uh, they're the only places I think that are COVID nineteen free at the moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: I, I just wrote a piece actually recently on the um, the bugs on the International Space Station, and there are fifty five different types of. Uh, of bacteria and uh, other microorganisms on the space station.
3: And yeah. we need them?
2: Well, it's just because we carry them with us. Yeah. So we have a microbiome. Quite a lot of, of you is is not you. Mm-hmm. It's all the bugs you carry around around you, on top of you, inside you. And very, much the same on the space station. It's
3: a bit Stargate, isn't it? Stargate? Yeah. What sort of aliens? Yeah, that sort of symbiosis.
2: Oh, I suppose so. Yeah, well,
4: yeah. that's the way my mind. Yeah. yeah, 90s anyway.
2: reference, 90s TV reference uh, for you there, uh, which is very appropriate. T-minus yeah. 10, yeah. go for main yeah. engine start. Yeah. We are go for
1: main engine start. T-minus 6, 5, 4, 3,
2: 2, 1, and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. 24th of April that is 1990 and Space Shuttle Discovery blasts off the pad with five crew and a cargo bay filled with the Hubble Space Telescope. Well since then Hubble has transformed our view of the universe. Uh, at last count scientists had published more than 17,000 papers based on Hubble data.
3: But more than that is the fact that Hubble has had a profound impact on our culture. Uh, images of Hubble are everywhere, and thanks to Hubble, space is no longer black and white and it's full of dramatic landscapes and color. Well, I recently met Kathy Sullivan, and she's one of the astronauts who was on that Hubble mission. And she talked me through the deployment of the telescope on the second day of the flight.
1: This is Mission Control Houston. Our PDRS officer here in the flight control room confirms uh, via telemetry that uh, the Hubble Space Telescope has been grappled.
0: Our game plan was Steve Hawley would operate the robotic arm, grab the telescope, lift it up. Our job was position it above the cargo bay of the shuttle so that ground controllers could command antennas to unfold and solar rays and, and start checking out all the onboard electronics. Charlie Bolden would be backing up and helping Steve with the arm. Bruce McCandless and I had gotten halfway through the procedure to do a spacewalk just in case something went wrong. We were racing against the clock of draining the batteries.
1: You got to go to release the perlers and a go to transfer Hubble to internal power on time.
0: By design, Bruce and I had no active role in deployment because on any split second notice we might have to disappear. So I appointed myself photographer and I had every piece of photo gear that we had clustered up by some of the windows and was just documenting everything.
1: Mission Specialist Kathy Sullivan continues uh, to prepare for deploy operations, Uh, at this point uh, uh, beginning to set up photographic equipment on the flight deck uh, to uh, document the deploy activities.
5: You know, pitch is uh, about four degrees off, attitude-wise.
0: Okay. Things went slower than planned, lifting it those first few feet gingerly out of the bay because it began to rock and tilt, as it never had done in any of our simulations. And it it had a very, very tight fit in the shuttle cargo bay, so Steve was horrified that it was moving at all and really nervous about bumping it in the least bit.
1: This Hubble telescope Control Greenbelt, one day, one hour, 54 minutes, mission elapsed time continuing to receive television through the uh, Vandenberg uh, tracking station. And uh, it is clearly showing the uh, deployment of the uh, solar array masts uh, with the uh, solar array package uh, in the stowed position. The arrays are wound uh, much like a, a pair of window shades around a, a, a roller
0: It was a very complicated mechanism to lower these two arms so they were sticking out at the side of the telescope and then unfurl the solar rays from the rather like a pull-down curtain. The first side went just fine, all good. The second one, the arm came down, and then the curtains started to come out. And they went a little bit and stopped. There was a lot of head scratching and thinking and more commands from the ground. They went a little bit more and stopped. And at that point, Bruce and I dove down into the airlock and started getting suited up.
1: Houston Discovery, it looks like motion stopped with uh, just about one panel showing. And we see that too, Lauren. The DCE is off. This is Mission Control Houston. Flight controllers here in uh, Mission Control Center discussing an impending deadline. Uh, Within about 13 minutes, we will reach a point of having concluded the pre-breathe, and in order to provide enough rapid response time to support an EVA, we would need to begin depressurizing the airlock in about uh, 12 to 13 minutes from now.
0: All the engineers responsible for Hubble on the ground are frantically scratching their heads and trying to analyze you know, what what has happened here, why. So now we have two streams of activity in parallel. Kathy and Bruce, as quickly as you safely can, suit up get in your pressure suits, get ready to dump the airlock and go outside, and you guys on the ground. And you'll see if there's anything you can do to unstick this.
1: We need to get on with it.
0: Okay, flight, I'll come back with
1: the answer. I need answers now. Flight FAO. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I don't feel comfortable waiting until
1: I don't either. That's why I want the answers now.
0: Yeah, 6.20 is the, my drop-dead time from adding up all the times.
1: Okay, I'm going to have them press on. All right, Capcom, tell the crew we want them to press on into EVA... As quickly, we got four minutes on this pass. Discovery, Houston. Discovery, go ahead. Okay, with the panels that you've got out there right now, it's not satisfactory to stay overnight, so we're going to have to move out on the EVA.
0: We got all suited up. We started to depressurize the airlock. I think we had half the air dumped out. So there are like two steps left for us. One final checklist to make sure everything's working on your suit. Telemission control, it's okay they think for two seconds, and they come back and say, right, go for EVA, dump the rest of the year, off you go. We had those two steps left, and one of the engineers on the ground found a way to fix it with the software command. So off they went, sent the command, and began to get back into sequence to let Hubble go. And so the upshot of all of that is, instead of being up at the windows taking my pictures and watching Hubble as it receded away from the space shuttle Discovery, I was locked in a small tin can staring at a blank white wall when Hubble was deployed.
1: Go. go. ECOM Go. Enco, We're go. FAO. Go. Max. Go. PRS. Go flight. EVA. We're go. Sergeant, you're still go? Go. GC. Go. Network, go. Payloads, waiting on you.
0: Flight payloads, we are go, go.
1: Capcom, we have a go for release. Discovery, go for Hubble release. Okay, we have a goal for release, and we're gonna be a minute late. Okay, Charlie.
4: Good morning, outer space from all the human race. It's time to you stow your sleeping gear. We know you had a blast, you up in space at last. Now your main objective's clear. Deploy
2: I love that song, uh, Private Numbers and <laughs> Space is Our World. It's a, a song they composed specially for the uh, deployment of Hubble. And uh, thank you very much to band member Bruce Moody for um, letting us use use the song.
3: I must admit, if I was in space I'd quite like to hear that each morning it's quite upbeat isn't it, it? Is. Morning, its I
2: mean yeah. it's very space. 80s it's very late <laughs> yeah, 80s 90s stuff. but yeah it's great isn't it absolutely great um uh, the astronaut you heard from there was of course Kathy Sullivan and um, we got quite a lot of that interview and I think uh, we've used some in various radio programs we're making which I'll tell you more about in a sec but we've got some other Kathy Sullivan which I think we should say for a future uh, yeah, podcast.
3: yeah I agree and it was um it it Incredibly fortuitous in terms of how I got to meet her, because basically I got a phone call from Libby Jackson at the UK Space Agency saying I'm really ill. She could barely talk. She said, "Can you help me?" So I said, "Of course," which is how I ended up that evening at the US Embassy in London interviewing Kathy <laughs> a sort of, uh, Sullivan. So I fortunately had a bit of a head start on the Hubble stuff, having reported on it for most of the last thirty thirty years, um, on and off. And she was fabulous. It was a, it, she gave a fantastic interview. It was really fascinating listening to her, especially because what she's really proud of is the fact that she was part of a team she calls it Team Hubble she was part of Team Hubble and that included engineers scientists astronauts and their job was to ensure that Hubble could be repaired in space so before the launch they spent the best part of two years basically thinking up every possible problem that could go wrong with the telescope I'm thinking, well, okay, what would I need to fix it? And what could I do? Which when you think about how Hubble (laughs) started, which was a bit of a a disaster, uh, it's not the success that everybody thinks about it now. And there's a whole generation of people out there, as you know, who have no idea that it, it wasn't a success to begin with. Their work was crucial to making it the, the brilliant success it has been now and being able to upgrade it with servicing missions so that actually the telescope we have now is far, far better and superior to the telescope that was launched in 1990.
2: And uh, we should mention her book, which is called um, Handprints on Hubble, Hubble. which is a good book. I mean, you know, they can be a bit hit and miss, astronaut books, but it's a really, it's a really excellent one. And and I quite like the way
3: that she specifically wanted to pay tribute to those behind the scenes people, those team Hubble that were involved in Making sure it could be repaired so it 's uh for you know for if you 're really interested in in space and engineering and and the sort of the, the sort of behind the scenes work of it 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 's really good and and after that event at the u s embassy. I had volunteered, I'd been asked to go and speak at an organisation called UK SEDS, which is um, students, basically, um, who were interested in space. I'd said, yeah, of course, and I was thinking, okay, you know, it's something I'm doing on my day off, I'm not getting paid, it's a voluntary thing, and I thought, no, no, I'll do it, UK SEDS are really good. And it turned out Cathy Sullivan was... <laughs> speaking there so i actually got to meet her a second time and then interview her for the um hubble programs that we've been making for uh the bbc
2: thank you for that cue. yeah we're making two programs we've made one already actually um, Radio 4 BBC Radio 4 uh, Archive on 4 it's called the Hubble Legacy and you will hear some fantastic NASA Archive in there it's an hour long uh, yeah it's really good um, so there's some great stuff in there I mean, I say that but I made it yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, no, really I, 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 it's presented by Nicole Stott our um, favourite astronaut <laughs> and um, Sue's got a program coming up on World Service on Hubble but also on the James Webb Space Telescope it's uh, Successor, oh, they don't like using the word successor, do they? I
3: think we no. used it. I used we? it a <laughs> lot. Yeah, of course we should.
2: <laughs> Sue has a programme on uh, on the BBC World Service uh, on this, uh, on Hubble and James Webb uh, later this month.
3: What's the, what's, the, what's the World Service one? The Compass, isn't it? It's
2: called The Compass Window on the Universe. The window Only. Yeah, oh, on of course, universe. would
3: you hear that when, yes, when exactly. it launches? Yes, exactly. Yes, so you know, anyone who would it, think it was all planned. <laughs> you know, this, this is
2: production. Yeah. yeah it's production. To remember that. Yeah. yeah. Are you happy with your wine?
3: Uh, yeah, it's
5: lovely. Thank yeah, you. Excellent.
2: Yeah. Uh, this is Space Boffins in lockdown. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientist, who I'm assured, are also social distancing. See, uh,
5: I guess you,
3: you, you sound can... like the what, you're the one who's been having the wine. You see, I got myself I can... a little glass of wine during the Cathy Sullivan this, one. I
2: guess had this image of Naked Scientists social distancing. I'm sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> do follow us on social media, and if you like the podcast, tell others, say nice things in reviews, but don't mention the wine. The UK Space Agency continues to support the podcast as they do the small satellite industry in the UK. And we're going to hear from Craig Clark now because he's the founder and chief strategy officer of AAC Clyde Space, which is based in Glasgow, where he studied engineering. Now, they're famous for producing small satellites or CubeSats, although, to be honest, they're more cuboid than Cube nowadays. And perhaps because Craig is... Scottish, he told us before this that he compared one of their typical 30 by 10 by 10 centimeter satellites to the size of a whiskey bottle. Anyway, we went to meet Craig at Clyde Space HQ, which has the most fantastic sort of space sci fi art all over the walls with various rooms named after Ian M. Banks's sci fi novels, as well as its own facility for making their CubeSats.
4: So, this is our clean room. In this area, we do all of our assembly work. So we get a lot of contracted assembly work that comes in that we do finishing to and inspection. We have our test engineers that will do um, testing of all the subsystems. We also have automated test equipment and lots of thermal chambers and vibration tables downstairs. And I also have a thermal vacuum chamber downstairs. In this area here, we're standing right next to is where we do spacecraft integration. We can integrate about, I think, about seven satellites at any time. They're usually all different, so what we have, what you see sitting about, is we have Seahawk 2, which is partly used for software development for Seahawk 1, which is in orbit. We also have the NSL sat, flat sat, which we use for software development, and the start of one of our other missions. I think it's MRC, which is for Mauritius, which is the one Cube sat, which has got a little infrared camera on it.
2: It looks more like a
4: laboratory
2: than a clean room you'd often see in... In space. I was going
3: to say it's almost like a school lab, and then you discover <laughs> that the students have all made of <laughs> satellites. It. Yeah. yeah, so it's it,
2: you've got a, a series of benches, quite a few people in, you know, the normal clean room garb with uh, gloves, the uh, coat, and the, that hair net. <laughs> yeah, unlike most clean rooms where you see maybe one big satellite, it's almost like you've got satellites kind of casually placed on on desks. There's one over there, one of your your CubeSats, you've got deconstructed bits of CubeSats, some solar cells here there's all the equipment, oscilloscopes and metres and all all the rest of it. It's very unlike traditional space.
4: Yeah, so if you had a larger satellite say it was even 100 kilograms, you'd normally have like that on a a special table in the centre of like a a room which you have some computer equipment off to the side and then some people would have to be because you need space around it to work on it but our satellites are so small we can actually integrate them on on a bench and it's actually much easier to have it that way. So most of our benches are identical in terms of the equipment they've got, the tool chests they've got, all the, all the different types of like power supplies and oscilloscopes are all the same. So that whenever an, in, an engineer goes to test a satellite or integrate it, they don't have to set everything up again to do all that testing. It's all there in preparation for it.
3: And just next door to it, across from the corridor, is a door that says ground control.
4: Yes, yeah, so this is our our ground control room. We have our own ground station here in this building. The antenna arrays on the roof, and we operate many of our satellites from here. It's something that is fairly new. So in the last couple of years, we've we've installed this. I was telling somebody the other day how challenging it was actually to, because you know, to, to it's something that I always thought was important for us when we are delivering a satellite to someone. And whether we're doing operations or not, ultimately, we want to be making sure the satellite's working OK, especially in the first stages, which we call LEOP, which is Launch and Early Operation Phase. We do that a lot for all of our satellites, but it gives the engineers that are working on the, on the satellite some real a close connection to the satellite once it's in orbit. So things like tuning attitude control parameters are something that we can do a lot more easily now rather than going through someone else who's operating the satellite to make those changes. It's been a, it's a great bonus for us to have it in-house.
2: Now, I mean, it's not quite Mission Control Houston, but it's essentially the same thing with lots of screens, but really only one desk in the centre yeah. with one person surrounded by all this information.
4: Yeah, because it's mostly automated, which is what you need. I mean, we're gearing up to do lots and lots of satellites, so when we come to do constellations, we need to have an ability to operate them all once they're launched. But we're not going to do all of that ourselves. We don't have a network of ground stations around the world, and we never intend to have that. So we use partners. So we talk to, like, there's there's lots of new companies starting that are putting ground stations all over. So we'll partner with them to deliver that to the service. But having something in our own building where we can do the operations of... And keep an eye on things is really vital. But having the ground station here means that we do everything in this one building. So we do all the design, we do the build and the testing. We've got our environmental test downstairs, and then once it's launched, we operate. Only thing we need to do is maybe put a launch pad outside. To make it.
3: <laughs> Room on the roof,
4: yeah. maybe. <laughs> I mean,
2: that is extraordinary of how the space industry has changed. Here you are, half a mile from the centre of Glasgow, and you can build. And operate satellites from an industrial building. You know, it's a regular building. It's opposite, you know, what PC, PC World, <laughs> PC world and, and a car dealership. And you're building and sat- operating satellites.
4: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's funny when you look around for for a space like to do this, have this type of business. It's not like we need a big shed. You know, which we've got lots of engineers that need a desk and it needs to be officey. So there's there's actually very few um, facilities that are like kind of standard that would suit us. So we've ended up having to take over this. It's actually quite an old building. It's like this the concrete floors are solid. They're like really thick. So it suits us. It's kind of an industrial office block. We've kept it quite kind of trendy. I said trendy is the wrong word, isn't it? Funky? Industrial. Yeah. <laughs> industrial. Industrial
3: chic. Yeah. Yeah, industrial chic.
4: Sci-fi. <laughs> With like graffiti on the walls and stuff like that. So I think it's it's quite an it's meant to stimulate innovation and, you know kind of more suit our approach which is i mean we're not a traditional space company and we do have our processes and our product assurance processes but they don't they don't stifle innovation they're there to help us to do what we do repeatedly and have a good quality product but we can move quickly as well to to respond to our customer needs
3: Craig Clark, founder of AAC Clyde Space. And thanks again to the UK Space Agency for supporting the podcast.
2: And we should mention the very sad news of the death of Apollo 15 command module pilot, Al Warden. Uh, he was one of our favourite astronauts uh, for the Space Boffins podcast. a lot of people, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a frequent visitor uh, to the UK. He was a guest twice Uh, on the podcast and it it just both times they were just fantastic interviews Uh, he's also the author of one of the best space books best astronaut books uh, falling to earth really brilliant uh, really honest and I guess one of the things that stands out when I uh, have interviewed him is just that I mean he did an amazing mission uh, you know uh, in orbit around the moon I wrote a piece on him being the, the loneliest human ever uh, and he said he wasn 't lonely; he actually really liked it when he was out of on the far side of the moon on his own uh, out of touch with um with mission control but But what he said was that his whole life wasn 't defined by that, which is very different to a lot of the other yeah. Apollo yeah. astronauts you know okay yeah he he obviously he you know he he was touring till very recently mm. as a, a former Apollo astronaut, but he did an awful lot since going on that mission I think that 's what kept him kept him so so grounded. Oh, one of my proudest moments, um, Doug Millard, uh, the uh, curator at the Science Museum really wanted to meet our Warden. And I was interviewing him a- at a hotel. And um, thanks to uh, the person really who, who, who was instrumental in bringing him to the UK, uh, Vic Southgate. Yeah, yeah. Um, she uh, helped me to to get our Warden to the Science Museum, just so Doug Millars could could meet him, and I just got this image in my mind of Al Warden standing outside the the Science Museum, and I guess he was in his late seventies, even eighties by then, and he was standing out there in his uh, in his leather jacket, smoking, and he just looked like the coolest man <laughs> alive. Uh, and I've since seen some pictures of him doing the rounds a, a while back um, with Elton John, and. Um, And so you've got Elton John and Bernie Taupin in this room with Al Warden. And in that room, Al Warden looks the coolest. And Al Warden's got his feet up on the chair. He is absolutely the coolest astronaut. Um, So what we're going to do is put together a special podcast featuring those interviews uh, we did. And um, I hope to do that in the
3: next couple of weeks. Great. I'm looking forward to that because I never got to interview him. um, But I did uh, see him at the New Scientist Live event in October I think it was or September because Vic's brought him over for that and I I now regret not going over and saying hello and everything but he was mobbed you know there were so many people there so I just sort of stood about two meters away watching sort of basking in the glow of greatness and took a few photos but but never mind anyway if you think being stuck at home is bad the 1970 flight of Apollo 13 will probably put things into perspective. With the Earth rapidly receding in the window, an explosion very nearly meant they didn't make it back alive.
2: Now, there's been some great coverage of Apollo 13, the movie, of course, the BBC's 13 Minutes to the Moon, and our own audible series, at The Space Race. So we were thinking, well, what can we do? Uh, what can we offer that's different? Well... How about this song for a start?
4: Three
5: men in this spaceship from Earth woonward bound on board. And Now,
2: Now, it's not the best audio quality, but that's an extract from a song by NASA engineer Jerry Woodfill, and that's him singing and playing. Now, he graduated from Rice University in Houston, worked on the warning system for Apollo, and this get this, he is still an employee at NASA in Houston. I just think that's that's amazing. Um, so I met him in uh, 2018. We've been in touch ever since. So here's
5: his experience of the Apollo 13 disaster. I was hired as the warning system engineer the failure engineer and I, I had a very tough academic career at Rice University and I didn't think I was going to graduate. So I'm a great person to talk about failure not being an option because uh, I failed so many times academically. But I made it principally because a gentleman by the name of John F. Kennedy came to Rice Stadium and I sat there and listened to the president begin to talk about going to the moon. I thought, well, if we can make it to the moon, I can graduate He said, we do this thing not because it's easy, but because it's hot. That's what he said. Well, it wasn't easy getting a degree at Rice University. It was hard. But if we could go to the moon, Jerry could graduate. And so what I do, when I go out and talk, I've memorized about five or six minutes of John Kennedy's talk, because I was right there. I really think I'm one of the few people that he talked to that day that actually took a job here at NASA because of what he said we choose to go to the moon we choose to go to the moon we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. I was assigned the alarm system, the warning system, and that was my job to assure that we could get back from the moon to Earth. And in that respect, that's what I did in my uh, early career at NASA. And so because I was assigned the warning system, I had to visit with the astronauts, I visited with the program managers, and I'd get calls at my desk say, why does this work when this thruster comes on? How do we know that it's failed and uh, it's working correctly? Or when the electrical power system has gone down, uh, wh- what is the criteria that uh, alerts us to know that we've got a problem? And so in Apollo 13, if you, you hear it all the time, Houston, we've had a problem. And we've had a main bus be undervolt. Dan, we've got one more item for you. When you get a chance, we'd like you to uh, stir up your
1: cryo tanks. In addition, I uh, have a shaft and trunnion. Okay. Or look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Stand yeah, by.
5: Uh, Houston, we've had a problem here. That's my system that gave the warning that the bus voltage had dropped too low because of the explosion in the action tank. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Then Fred Hayes says, and we had a bang and along with the caution and warning.
1: We had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution
5: and warning. Now he said that along with the caution. Of, so I have my headset on, and I'm hearing Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell and Jack Swigert. They're saying we've had a problem, and I'm seeing a console. I'm seeing a indication of the, my alarm system has rung a master alarm. That's a tone that they hear. It'd be like a a police car coming down NASA Parkway. You'd hear that. Astronauts are hearing that. Well, I'm not hearing that, but I'm hearing their call for help, and I'm also seeing uh, uh, that the alarm system has come. But then I'm seeing that there are seven different alarms almost simultaneously that come on, and, and I'm thinking I've got a problem. I mean, you, yeah, Houston, we've got a problem. But Jerry's got a problem because his alarm system can't be that, can't be having seven alarms simultaneously. There's got to be a problem with my system with instrumentation.
1: We may have had an instrumentation problem, Flight. Roger. Okay, uh, let's, get, let's get our instrumentation uh, lined up here, you guys. ECS, what do you got? Hey, uh, Brown, are you copying this? Yeah, uh, right. Air to yeah, ground. Yeah, uh, uh, tank two. Uh, Look at that, yeah? pressure.
5: Well, then, Jim Lovell, he looks out of the port of his command ship, and he sees something venting. He says this. He said, I see something venting. When I heard that. I said, oh, ho, 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 it's not the alarm system. Uh, Jerry's system is working very well. In fact, it is the first alert that the astronauts had. They heard that bang, and they, the master alarm came on, the tone came on.
1: Flight, like say again. Have you called in your backup ecoms now, see if we can get some more brain power in this we thing. got one here.
5: Roger. So that was my highlight of my 53-year... It happened a long time ago, you know, but it is the thing that I share a lot about. And, of course, then I worked with the team for the next four days to help bring them back to Earth. And I was a member of the team, and we got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Nixon. And so I, I have that hung in my office, the plaque that all of us shared that actually worked on their rescue.
1: Odyssey, Houston, we show you on the mains. It really looks great.
5: An extremely loud applause as Apollo 13 on the
1: main shoots comes through loud and clear on the television display here. It was not an
5: option when the whole world free.
1: Rescue, we
2: <laughs> the force of nature that is uh, Jerry Woodfill at still an engineer at NASA. I love the way he talks in the third person. Yes, <laughs> it's just, he's he, fabulous. He's brilliant. Isn't he? Brilliant storyteller. I mean, we could just do a podcast with <laughs> the. Inter- I did an interview with him. It was meant to be about Apollo Ten. It ended up <laughs> Apollo Thirteen. Um, oh, it, it, wow. Yeah, he, he was just fantastic. I've got. I think I've got a, probably a couple of hours worth. Um, oh, of, Man, of, of, we've used in various things. Yeah. So he, he, he appeared quite a lot in the in the Audible series. Um, I'm going to have a look through it and see oh. if there's any other bits and pieces. Oh, Oh, but yeah, he's great. absolutely fantastic, and still works. Still an employee of NASA. He still years, works I an engineer. Uh, I think in robotics now. So he's he's still an employee at at NASA, and as as you can hear, a musician too. It's a shame the quality of that's not great. But it's on uh, it's on YouTube if you want to uh, oh, to look that right. up. And um, so it's it's a song he wrote himself about Apollo thirteen.
3: Yeah, well, that I think that's a a wonderful. Idiosyncratic, <laughs> unique. <laughs> exactly, there. yeah. And you've had two great, song, two great space two songs, two great space-themed
2: songs. We should have made more of that at the beginning, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well,
3: um, do follow us on social media. Get in touch via. Twitter or email, info at boffinmedia.co.uk.
2: And we'll be back next month. And we'll put together that Al Warden special in the meantime. Uh, from uh, the uh, Space Boffins <laughs> the, bunker, the in dark- bunker in, dark- yeah. in Darkest bunker. Yeah. <laughs> Stay safe, everybody. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening.